Jeremiah chapter 5. You remember that uh, we said one reason for studying Jeremiah at this time was the parallel between the historical situation that the southern kingdom of Judah was in and the, the situation our nation is in today. And that the word that God addressed to the nation through Jeremiah is the word that we need to hear as a nation and that we as Christians need to be addressing to our nation. It's not uh, a very encouraging word in some respects. Uh, the passage before us today, though, uh, is very interesting in that respect. The first thing that we have in this fifth chapter is the challenge to find a man. In verse 1, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. Notice the instruction to search. The challenge is uh, not, in a sense, just to Jeremiah, but to the whole nation or to the whole world. Look at the capital city of my nation, Jerusalem. Uh, what are we to look for? Well, we're to look and see if there be one man who, to quote the King James, executes judgment and seeks truth. The word execute judgment means one man who does that which is right. One man who has taken the law of God for his rule of life and uh, in the power which God gives is really seeking to follow it, is endeavoring to live by his conscience as enlightened by the word of God. He executes judgment. He is a man of integrity. And who seeketh the truth. Now, the King James translation there is not real helpful. Uh, the Lutheran commentator, Leish, in his commentary on Galatian, on uh, Jeremiah, which is probably one of the finest out on Jeremiah, points out that the Hebrew word, which is translated here, seeking truth, the Hebrew word is immuna, E-M-U, N-A-H. It can mean uh, one man who is faithful or who is firm and steadfast. It's the same Hebrew word that is translated in reference to the arms of Moses being steadfast when Aaron and Hur held his arms up uh, from uh, daylight to sunset. But he says it can also be used in the sense of faith. For instance, it's the same Hebrew word that's used by Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4, the a very well-known biblical verse, the just shall live by faith. And Leach says this is really the way we ought to take it here, that what was needed was a man of faith, a man who believed in God's promise of a coming Redeemer, a Messiah. That not only was the problem in the nation one that there was rebellion against the law of God, and the general populace had said, no, we will do our own will rather than God's revealed will. 
but the problem was also one of unbelief. And of course, ultimately, belief always comes back biblically to belief in the Messiah, belief in God's promised Redeemer. And uh, that's what is always needed, and we will never find men of moral integrity unless we have men of faith. Because moral integrity or doing right or executing judgment is the fruit of saving faith. Faith that works through love, to use Paul's phrase. We're not saved by our executing right. When we are saved through faith, we're united to Jesus Christ by his Spirit, and he dwells within and he produces a whole new moral quality of life. That's why it says faith without works is dead. Faith that doesn't produce this execution of judgment as a trend of life is not real saving faith. Now, men have always been saved in the same way. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 3 and 4. He says, how was Abraham saved in the Old Testament? Abraham believed God. He had faith in God's promise, his promise concerning a coming Redeemer, the seed of Abraham in whose seed all nations would be blessed. He had faith in God's promise to forgive him through the blood of the Lamb, and the Lamb pictured Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who would be offered for Abraham's sins and for our sins. And so Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, the man who seeks to earn his salvation by his good works, is the reward, salvation or heaven, not reckoned of grace, it wouldn't be a gift, but of debt, it would be something God owed you. But to him that worketh not, he's not trying to earn his salvation by his good behavior although he seeks to do the will of God. To him that worketh not, but to him that believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, he's trusting in God's promise to forgive him, an ungodly person, through Jesus Christ who died for his ungodliness. His faith is counted for righteousness. That is saving faith. And that's what was needed. A man of saving faith whose faith then had brought forth fruit, right behavior. So, the challenge is, look for a man like that. And you notice God's definition of a man. If we're not a man like that, we're less than what God has in mind by a man. Look for a man, a man who is a man of faith, a man who executes judgment, a godly man. You notice the promise. Uh, that's what they were to seek, and they were to seek it everywhere. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, seeking the broad places thereof, if you can find a man. And if you can find a man, the promise, I will pardon it. I will forgive this city. I will forgive this nation. What a tremendous promise. You find me a man like that in the nation, says God, and I will pardon the nation. Of course, there were men like that. Jeremiah was like that, and he was at Jerusalem. 
Baruch, his scribe, was like that. And there were a few others like that. As we go through the book, we'll pick that up. And there was a team of the faithful, so to speak. And so Calvin says that apparently the language is that of hyperbole that God is using, which is to say that the vast, vast majority of the populace are not like that. Find me men like that. Any, any degree of men like that, and I will pardon the nation. Or, uh, he's excluding this band of the faithful, in a sense, uh, as if the Billy Graham team were to go to Washington, and God, excluding the team, were to say, now you find me in Washington, men like this, and I will pardon the nation. The answer might be, well, there are a lot of men like that. That's what men would have said in Jeremiah's day, because in Jeremiah's day, and right at this point, there was a revival of religion. Josiah, the young boy king, uh, had come across the word of God. The old high priest, Hilkiah, had been cleaning out the clutter in the temple, which had virtually been in disuse for generations. And he found, way back in the corner somewhere, the book of the law. He found a portion of the Old Testament. And he brought it in and he gave it to the king. And the king read it and the king said, Woe is us! We haven't kept God's law. No wonder we're in such sad shape. He said, Call the priests together. Clean out the temple. Refurbish the temple. Reinstitute the sacrifices. And the priest laughed at him. And the king said, no, we're going to do it. And reluctantly the priest began to do it. And the people began to respond and to come. And there was something of a revival of religion in process. But notice what God says about that in verse 2. And though they say, the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. God says, all of this revival is veneer. The Lord looketh on the heart. They draw near with their lips, but their heart is far from them. Well, there's a challenge. Find a man or a group of men who really mean business about serving me. Men who have placed their faith in my Redeemer and men who are living by my law through the power of of my spirit. There's a challenge. Notice second, the correction by God in verse 3. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Notice the correction. God had corrected his nation. God delights in being merciful. God's strange work is when he has to pour out his wrath. And so to turn them from that path that must ultimately lead to his wrath, he in love chastened them. 
He corrected them. He sent drought. He caused their armies to be defeated. Uh, he caused their crops to fail. It says, Yet, uh, while thou hast stricken them, they have not grieved. Oh, they howled and they complained. But they didn't grieve unto repentance. They were sorry, but they didn't sorrow unto repentance to a break with their ways. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. If that were being addressed to America today, what would it say? It would say, I sent the energy crisis. I caused you to suffer defeat in Vietnam. I caused the economic chaos and setback. But you've refused correction. It says they hardened their hearts. They made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Don't do that when God deals with you as an individual or us as a nation in that way. I remember a gentleman in our church who recently suffered a very severe financial setback. And I wondered how it would affect him spiritually. And as we talked, I could see his heart had been softened by it. Instead of rebelling against God, he had returned and to any degree that he'd been slipping away. His heart was softened. And he had the attitude, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's right. That's the way to respond. I see the challenge to find a man, the correction by God. Third, the corruption, the completeness of the corruption. In verse 4, Jeremiah says, Therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. He said, I looked at the poor, the common people, and I said, Well, they're Sin is just due to ignorance. They're not instructed. They don't know the way of the Lord. They don't know what God's will is. They are just ignorance. So I said, I'll get me to the great men, the learned men, the university men, the leaders of the nation. Verse 5, I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Mm. With them it wasn't ignorance, it was just rebellion. I remember reading Huxley, one of the popularizers of the theory of naturalistic evolution, that evolution took place absolutely without God's hand involved at all and that there is no God and that evolution explains everything around us. We don't need to think of the God of the gaps anymore. But he says... The reason he quickly caught up the theory when it came out as a scientific theory and endeavored so to popularize it, he and a group of men, he said, it gave us a tool that we'd been looking for. He said, we were looking for some way to throw off the restrictions of morality and of Christianity and to live the lives we wanted to live and to make our own rules. And now, now we had to live Rebellion. Throw off the yoke. 
the great men. The corruption, it was complete, and he describes the nature of it. It involved spiritual adultery and literal adultery, among other things. In verse 7, How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery, and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. This is not speaking of literal adultery. This is speaking of idolatry. They went after other gods. In those days, the gods of Baal, Ashtaroth, Chemosh, the gods of the nations around them. In our day, materialism, uh, pleasure, sex, all the goals and things that so many people in America and around us are living for, the things that make them happy or make them sad. False gods, spiritual adultery, because it's departure from the true God and worship of him and service to him. You cannot serve God and mammon. But then there was the literal adultery, adultery, which will always result from spiritual adultery. Verse 8, they were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. That ought to be written on every signboard in America. Every one of them neighed after his neighbor's wife. That's an apt description of the situation of our day. Now we see the challenge to find a man, uh, the correction by God unresponded to, the completeness of the corruption, the consequences that had to result. In verse 6, God would punish. Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces because of their transgressions. He's not speaking here of literal wild animals, although there were such, but he's really speaking of the enemy nations he would bring against them. In verse 15, Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel. It is a mighty nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not. That's how he would punish. Of course, we know that he was speaking of the Babylonians. He would punish. It was necessary that he punish. In verse 7, How shall I pardon thee for this? As John Calvin says, God now shows that he was not at liberty to forgive this people. God can no more surrender his judgment than his essence. Whenever this delusion creeps over us and Satan seeks by his allurements to lead us to forget God's judgment, let this come to our mind that God would not be God except he were to punish sins. He's the judge of all the world. The equity of it, the fact that it was right that he did this, he argues with them about it in uh, verse 9. Shall I not visit for these things? He, in a sense, he discusses it with the nation. Now you tell me, says God, shall I not visit for these things? 
saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on a nation such as this? Whew. I can almost hear those words being uttered in reference to America today. And yet God would be compassionate even as he punished. In verse 10, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah, excuse me, go ye up upon her walls and destroy. Here he calls to this enemy nation. But make not a full end. Take away her battlements, for they are not the Lord's. Her defenses no longer are the Lord's. But don't make a full end. In verse 18, Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with thee. That's a key verse in Jeremiah. Because while Jeremiah says that the nation is going to be punished, he yet says it will not be a full end as it was with the northern nation. He later says they'll go into captivity and then come back. We see... Uh, the challenge to find a man, the correction by God, which was not responded to, the completeness of the corruption from the lowest to the highest, the consequences it had to have of punishment. Now the causes of their failure to respond to God's correction. In verse 12, they refused to see God's hand in it. Verse 12, they have belied the Lord and said, it is not he, neither shall evil come upon us. How many of our leaders would say to us today, and how many of our spiritual leaders possibly, but particularly our political leaders, our problem is that we just haven't solved our economic uh, situation here, and we're going to... Uh, this is not the Lord now. This is not a spiritual thing. Now, this is just a matter of a new administration, uh, better leadership, uh, men who can think it out better, uh, mechanics. They haven't seen God's hand in it. How true that is of us and they. When the energy crisis comes, who's looked beyond the crisis to God who sent the crisis and said, God, we hear you. When we were defeated in Vietnam, who looked beyond the folly of our approach to the warfare and the way we went at it and everything and said, God, we hear you. When trouble came galloping into your life and into your family's life, who stopped and looked up and said, God, thank you for that trouble. Yes, I see you're calling me back to yourself. I've lost my first love. I need to straighten out things in my life and things in my family. Thank God some of you do respond like that. And that's the purpose of it. But they didn't see God's hand. They refused to see God's hand in it. And they rejected God's messengers in verse 13. And the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. And they would say when Jeremiah would prophesy, they'd say, Oh, here comes that prophet of doom again. Why can't we have a little inspiration, Jeremiah? Don't you ever preach a joyful sermon, Jeremiah? 
Jeremiah, you're in a rut. Can't we get another preacher? <clears throat> then he said, the prophets shall become wind. They're not speaking except out of their own thoughts. They rejected God's messengers. You know, God says, Wherefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Because ye speak this word, you say that my prophets speak but wind. Behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them, Jeremiah. Every time you speak a word, I'll fulfill that word. What was it Jesus said? Jesus said, He that hears you, hears me. And he that despises you, despises me. When you, as a Christian, speak to that man at the office, speak to your next-door neighbor, speak to your family about Jesus, it's hearing Jesus if they respond, and it's rejecting Jesus if they do not, as long as the word that you speak is really the truth. He that hears you, hears me. What a solemn thought. The third reason that they didn't respond to correction, they re didn't reflect on the power of God, who God was. In verse 22, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for a bound of the sea by a perpetual degree that it cannot pass, and though the waves thereof toss themselves, Yet can they not prevail, though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? God said, reflect on who you're resisting and rebelling against. You're rebelling against me, and I just put the sea there and put a little sand around it and said, don't pass over that sand by perpetual degree, decree. And it obeyed me. That's the kind of power I have. I hung the stars in space. I created the universe. I spake, and it stood fast. And you dare to rebel against me? I shared Friday night at this fellowship supper how at a point in my life, in the service, living a carefree life, going through the routine of saying my prayers every night like insurance, I knelt one night, God bless Mom and Daddy and Sister Wiley and the dog. Forgive me for doing all these things, dear God, and help me to be better. And all of a sudden, I had a feeling that God was saying, Do you really want to be different? Do you really want to do my will, young man? And I thought, and I said, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be any different or not. And I was afraid if I said I did, he'd make me different. And then, all of a sudden, the power of a verse like this, the concept came home. What are you doing? You are resisting God. That's dumb. You can't fight God. All God's got to do is say... And that's the end of you. Only then the end is just you elsewhere forever. Ooh. That's what God's saying. Won't you fear me? They didn't reflect 
on the power of God and who it was that they were resisting. And then finally, they relied on the words of the false prophets. Verse 30. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by, me, by their means. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof when those lies that you've been told turn out to be lies? When those prophets say it isn't going to happen. When those national leaders say everything's going to be all right, there ain't going to be economic chaos. We can go on and build up and build up and build up and build up our national debt. We can go on and raise taxes and raise taxes. We can go on and weaken our defenses and the Russians are not going to do anything really. And we've got it all in control and, and what will you do? in the end, when it turns out to be lies. That's an awful, awful passage, isn't it? A very, very practical passage, isn't it, to us. But you know what? There's a note of joy and rejoicing and hope and encouragement in this passage as much as in any place in Scripture. Go back to that first verse. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see and know and seek in the broad places thereof. Run to and fro in Birmingham and see if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment and seeketh the truth, a man of faith. And a man who is really seeking to follow the Lord and to do his will. And I will pardon it. There's a hopeful verse. There's a way out. The chance to avoid the judgment of God. There is a chance. And this passage furnishes at the same time as it furnishes all this gloom and darkness. One of the most striking manifestations of the mercy of God in the whole range of scripture and hope for our nation. Find the man and I will pardon. And of course we say it's hyperbole. Let's say find a number of men. What kind of men? We've talked about that. But uh, only through Christ can we be that kind of a man. Only through trust in Christ can we be a man of God who thoroughly executes truth, who really follows the law of God? Not perfectly, but really making progress and making an impact spiritually on our nation and on those around us. But we can do it through Christ. In other words, the most patriotic man in a nation, the bulwark of a nation's defenses, are those men like that. Are you a man like that, or a woman like that, or a youngster like that? You're the salt of the earth. You're the hope of our nation. And if you're not a man or a woman like that, why not become a man or a woman like that? You can, through Christ. Let's compare this encouraging statement with one or two other verses over in Ezekiel, where he refers back to the situation here. 
In Ezekiel 13, chapter 5, Ezekiel 13, 5, he said to the prophets, the teachers, the preachers, ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. His charge to the preachers of that day was that there was a breach in the wall in the defenses of the nation which had been made by sin and defenders of the nation ought to betake themselves to those breaches and fill them up. Uh, we do this or else the vengeance of God will come in at those breaches against us. And we do it as we call people to repentance. And as we set the pattern ourselves, then we are restorers of the breaches. Ezekiel 22:30, a great verse. Ezekiel 22:30. God says in reference to that past situation, "And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none." I sought for a man that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I might not destroy it, but I found none. There's something of a twofold image here. The image is that of interceding for the nation. I sought for a man who had really become a prayer warrior, like Moses interceded for Israel when God had said in uh, the Old Testament in Exodus that he was going to wipe out Israel. And uh, Psalm 106, it says, Therefore God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach uh, to turn away the wrath. We turn away the wrath of God as we pray to God to forgive our nation. Uh, as Abraham prayed for Sodom, that's one aspect of it. In that way, we make up the breach. We stand in the hedge there. And maybe also it has to do with religious leaders or laymen or statesmen who themselves set the pattern, not just of praying, but of seeking to execute truth and right. God says he seeks for such men. Matthew Henry sums it up like this. Note, sin makes a gap in the hedge of protection that is about a people, a gap by which God enters in to destroy them. Note second, there is a way of standing in the gap and of making up the breach against this judgment of God by repentance and prayer and reformation. Notice third, when God is going forth against a sinful people to destroy them, he expects some to intercede for them. And he inquires if there be but one that does. So much it is his desire and delight to show mercy. If there be but a man that stands in the gap, as Abraham did for Sodom, he will discover him and he will be pleased with him. Christian, let us resolve to be that man. Men like that. Men and women, boys and girls like that. There is hope. Let's be men who stand in the gap, men who make up the hedge, 
Men who plug up those holes in the defenses of our country that have been made by sin. As we pray to our God, as we spread our faith, as we obey our God with the help of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Let's be men and women of God. That's the greatest thing you can do for your nation and for your God. And if you're not a Christian, there's an awful gap in your defense. But you know what? Jesus stepped into that gap one day, and that wrath of God that should have fallen on you fell on him. He made up the hedge. And now if you will surrender to Jesus Christ as your master and trust him as your savior, God will accept you freely and make you his son. Begin to work in you a new quality of life. I challenge you right now to do it. Let us pray. As we pray, Christian, here's the hope of our nation. Godly men and women, men who will make up the hedge and stand in the gap. Won't you pray in your heart and tell God something like this? Oh God, I want to be that man or that woman or that child. God, work in me. Make me one who executes judgment and a man of faith. God, make me one of those who fills up the hedge. Whatever the cost may be, I want to be a man or a woman of God. And if you're not a Christian, why not pray in your heart like this, if you really mean Lord Jesus, I thank you for stepping into that awful gap and taking the wrath of God that was headed straight for me. Lord Jesus, I trust you for my forgiveness, and I surrender to you as my master. Come into my life and make me a godly man and woman. Amen.